Hey everybody, welcome back. This is week 32 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. And this week we're in all new territory. <laughs> so we've, we've shifted into the epistles, you guys, and that can get a little bit tricky, mostly because the epistles are written differently. There's no storyline anymore. We're getting guidance from the apostles to people who are in these different areas that they've been teaching. This one in particular, we're going to be in Romans because it's the longest book. They're arranged not chronologically, but usually based on length. And Romans is a long book. It's what Paul writes to the Romans before he ever can get there. He knows there are people who are covenanting, making covenants with God and wanting to be established as a church in Rome. And he aches to get there. Remember, that's what we studied the last several weeks, that he's trying to get to Rome. He writes this epistle while he's in that waiting process. Because one of the difficulties that they're going to have is that they they don't have a depth of doctrine. You know, they, they've made covenants. These are members of the church that he's writing to, people who have been baptized and are on that covenant path. But they need more. You know, I, I imagine it is hard for Paul. He has a lot of understanding and he wants to help them navigate their world. Because you guys, Rome is a bit of a mess. One, it's a huge city, but two, it's a city with a lot of trouble, right? It's got a lot of wickedness, a lot of confusion, and he wants to cushion these young saints. You know, like I, I just think he sees their seeds planted and what he wants to do is put one of those little protective shells around it, like you do on a tomato plant, you know, just to give them some safe harbor while they're growing up in this faith. And I think that's what his epistles are designed to do. I also think, especially this epistle this week, is designed to teach where they have common ground. These converts to the faith are coming from all different backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, and they have very different traditions and histories, and it's probably hard for them to find comfort together. But a big part of what we believe is that we gain strength as we gather as saints and come together. And what Paul knows is the same thing that our prophet today teaches, that the common ground between all of us, no matter what country we live in or what language we speak or what our background is, is our understanding of Jesus Christ. As we grow in faith in Jesus Christ, we can find common ground because we all need him. And that's Paul's big message today. All of us, Jew and Gentile, need Jesus Christ. We need the grace that comes through his atonement, and he's going to teach us how to tap into it. So there's a lot to learn. It's a little bit cumbersome in its language. So I'm going to do my best to guide you through here so that hopefully you can find these beautiful little nuggets of wisdom that are tucked amidst the verses. And I think it's going to be well worth your time. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. It's time to get started. When you read Romans 1, it'll kind of sound like a high councilman's talk. <laughs> you know, when the high councilman comes, Jason's on the high council right now. So when I hear him speak at church, they often begin with, let me tell you who I represent. You know, I'm here with the love of the stake. I'm here to tell you how much your stake present loves you and also to give you some concerns. You know, I just think it's the same tone because Paul isn't a Roman. You know, he hasn't even set foot in Rome. So he doesn't know their exact troubles. He doesn't understand their exact issues, but he is an apostle of God. And as an apostle, he is a seer. He is someone who doesn't just see what dangers are coming, but also can see what the saints need. Because he's a witness of Christ. So if you look in the verses, that's where he begins. Before he talks about how much he loves them, before he talks about the guidance he has to help them stay on this covenant path, he starts with, 
let me tell you about my authority as an apostle of God, who I am. And so he talks about uh, being a witness of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed of the line of David, you know, a literal bloodline descendant of King David, and also the son of God, because he's seen him as a resurrected savior and therefore knows that he is this divine son of God. I also love what he says in five, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to, to the faith among all nations for his name. To me, this is Paul saying, it's not me that <laughs> I didn't contribute much to this equation. He's basically saying it's, I have faith and trust in the grace of Jesus Christ to make me enough for this calling so that I can come and I can help you and I can teach you. I can't be there in person, but my words, if they are saturated with the spirit of Jesus Christ, can be enough to help you. Let me tell you how the Lord feels about you. And then just like High Councilman does about how the state presidency feels, he talks about the Lord's love for this particular group of people. So if you look in seven, he talks to specifically to these Roman saints, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of through all the whole world. He's heard about their faith and their devotion despite persecution. And he's telling them that we all know about you. We know who you are. We know your difficulties and we hear about how you hold tight to the truth. And we know just how hard that is. Great job. You know, I just think it's such a lovely beginning to a leadership talk to say like, I, we see you, this is so hard and you're doing a great job. I also love that he calls, calls them to be saints. He doesn't call them saints yet, although they're going to call each other saints. You know, I, I think he's saying, I can see big potential in you. I think that's actually what a seer is called to do, to see warnings that, you know, dangers that are coming, to see clearly the obstacles in people's paths, and also to see potential. You know, they can, he can see that they can become something great. Even if he can't be in their city with them, they have the capability to become something. And as a seer, he can see that, and his job is to help them see it. And so he talks about how he's been praying for them and how he's grateful that he has a chance to talk to them, even if it's not in the way he wishes he could do it. I actually love how he phrases it. says in 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established. His goal is that he can give them guidance, that he can, you know, he's had a couple decades of this process of planting seeds of truth and letting them grow and reaping the harvest and tasting the fruit. And he knows the church is true and he knows the words of Christ are true and he wants to, he wants to help them, right? That's his goal, but he can't be with them. So he does the next best thing. You can see in 12. That is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and of me. Even though Paul can't be with them, what he says in these words is that he knows that if he came to Rome, it would be he who would also be edified. I like this for what we read in the Doctrine and Covenants. Remember, it talks about that, that we're going to have people who are teachers and people who are learners and that they're both edified together when they come with that goal. And I think that's a powerful thing for a leader to say. Even though he can't be there, he trusts that if he could, there would be this reciprocal blessing that would happen for both of them. And then he talks about where he stands. I just think it's one of the weightiest verses in all of this week's study. It says in 15 and 16, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
this um, stance of not being ashamed is mighty. He knows that as soon as he stands up in Rome, persecution will be heaped on his shoulders. Even just trying to get to Rome, persecution is heaped on his shoulders. But he's not afraid. He is, for me personally, I think it's because he's tasted the fruit. He is someone who knows how good that fruit of the word tastes. And so he will share it with anyone and everyone he can. The closest thing I can compare it to is if you had called me two years ago, let's say, to recruit YSAs to attend Institute, I would have diligently done my calling, but not been very good at it. But now it's been 18 months, maybe a little more since I've been teaching this one little Institute class. And I have tasted so much fruit from that experience, not just from being in class and being able to teach it, but also being able to learn in that class. Like they'll make comments. We'll have discussions where the the spirit is just rich. And I know how good that class can taste. You know, I know what that fruit tastes like. And so now I go out everywhere I go. When I meet a YSA, I invite them to class. It gets kind of obnoxious sometimes because it's like, it doesn't matter if they're in my stake. If it's somebody at a checkout line, I don't even care. Any YSA age person I meet, I invite them to come to class because I know how good it tastes and I know how hard it is in the world out there. And I want them to come and take refuge in this happy little place that has been created every Tuesday night. I, I, that's how I feel like Paul is, but about the entire gospel message. He knows the plan of salvation and he knows that this is the only plan. There's no alternative. This is the way to find joy and peace and light. So he's trying to, trying to show them what it looks like to be a saint. He's, he said they have potential to be saints and now he's going to show them a saint is someone who is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you can't wait to tell other people about it and to live it because you know how good it tastes. So that's what he's going to speak about, that he, this comes through his faith. And then in 18, he warns about the alternative. In fact, I would say that the second half of the chapter is the alternative path. So Paul has laid out really clearly, here's the path. You guys are already on it, right? You're on this covenant path. You've made covenants. You're on the path. The alternative is if you step off that path, here's where it leads. To me, the second half of this first chapter is all about fruits. He's talked about the fruits and the richness and the joy that comes as he's partaken of the true fruit. And now he talks about what happens if you don't. And all the second half is darkness. That's essentially what he talks about. He says in 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. And then in 23, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like into a corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. He's basically saying like, we've seen this before. There are people who will distort God's laws. There are people who will, essentially what we saw in the Old Testament, when Moses went up to Sinai and received the commandments and hoped to give the Melchizedek priesthood and came down and found that in those 40 days, the people abandoned ship and made a golden calf. That's what this chapter is all about. All the ways we can make golden calves. You know, God's image in any other way is not worthy of our worship. And when we fall into those traps of worshiping the lust of the flesh or worshiping idols or worshiping wealth or anything over God, where we end up is darkness. The fruit is bitter. In fact, there's this great quote from President Nelson in the notes, but he talks about this, that all these other paths that we can choose to try and satisfy ourselves and find happiness, they all end in bitter fruit. 
and it creates bitter relationships between us and our fellow men, and it creates divisions between us and the power of God. And so that's what he warns about. There's warnings about sexual sins, love, chastity. There's warnings about covetousness, envy, murder, all these bitter fruits. And you can see a pinnacle of it in 31, without understanding covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful. Those are the fruits of picking any other way. There is one way towards salvation and any other way ends in some kind of tree of bitter fruit. And so Paul's trying to show a really clear distinction between them so that these people can choose to stay on the path. I think a big piece of it you see at the very end in 32 says some are so darkened in their understanding, except so far off the path that they're a little lost, that they have pleasure in those that do sin. The reason I think that's powerful from Paul's perspective is he's been in that spot. He's been someone who delighted. I don't know if he enjoyed watching the stoning of Stephen, but he was willing to stand and hold cloaks. He He's someone who wasn't content with just the Christians who were in Jerusalem. He wanted to be able to go out to the outlying areas and recruit them in so that they could be prosecuted. Like he is someone who delighted to have violence to some degree. And so he knows firsthand what those bitter fruits taste like, which is, I think, why his testimony of what the good fruits are is so incredibly powerful. He is like an Alma the Younger who knows the bitter and then pleads with us for the rest of his life to please partake of the good. I really love that after Paul takes time to talk through all the traps of the adversary and all the ways you can separate yourself from the power of God, he reminds us in big, bold words to judge not. These Commandments are not given as a, I think, a club to use against others, right? It's not designed for you to separate yourself from other people in the kingdom of God. It's designed for you to self-evaluate, to see where you stand with God and to make changes and corrections. The only person that is entitled to judge is Jesus Christ himself. And that's what Paul will make clear. Because living that perfect life and experiencing what he experienced, he is the only one worthy to be a judge. So the rest of us just need to judge our own selves and no one else. So he makes that pretty clear. And then he talks about some of the other issues that they might run into. He warns about hypocrisy in verse three. In four, I think it's really interesting. He sort of talks about trusting in God's processes, <laughs> that we shouldn't resent the way God likes to teach. You know, he's a certain kind of coach and he's a coach that sometimes lets you learn things the hard way. And you can't resent that process. Paul's been through some really hard things and he understands how good the fruit tastes after going through hard things. And so he's saying to the people like, trust in God's teaching methods. Don't, don't push back against this master teacher. And then he warns about those two alternatives again. In seven, you can see him guide them, guide them toward the path of righteousness. He says to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. God's going to give according to every man, according to his deeds. So he's saying, if you choose the deeds of, I'm going to be patient, I'm going to continue, I'm going to endure it well, you know, he'll give us guidance on this in a couple chapters. Then you reap the fruits of that harvest. You will taste the goodness that comes from it. And the goodness is what you see in 10, glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also the, to the Gentile. Paul's trying to make it clear that God is no respecter of persons. In fact, he'll echo Peter's words in 11 when he says just that, that you don't need the law of Moses to be a worthy saint. 
and you don't need any extra and you don't need to judge each other. You just need to lean in and learn how to grow the right kind of fruit. Because the alternative is what you see from eight through 10, where he says, basically, if you choose any other path, the fruit you get is unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, anguish. I mean, that's where that's where that road goes. And so he's trying to make it really clear that you need to choose. He's also making it clear that you can't just hear the word or even know the word. You need to do the word. That's what you see in 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. It's by putting your faith into action that we find power. And so that's what he tries to guide them towards. In 14, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. I know that's kind of a jumbly verse, but here's what's really beautiful about it, you guys. What he's saying is there is something within them that comes to the surface. Because what might happen is the Jews will say, but how can the Gentiles be good? If they don't know the law, they haven't lived according to the laws of Moses, they haven't been circumcised, how could they possibly be good or have any goodness in them? And so Paul's trying to teach them about their divine DNA, that written on their hearts, there is goodness, and it is guiding their actions. In fact, that's what you see in 15 which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. He promises that all men who come to this earth are blessed with the light of Christ. I really think you could link all these to what we read in the Doctrine and Covenants, like in DNC 88, about the light of Christ being in every man. The visual that I always love to teach, especially when it comes to my kids and the YSAs, is I almost picture it like an invisible solar panel. You know, like it's a... It's something that when we encounter goodness, that panel lights up. Like the ones, the landscaping lights I have in my yard, they're not plugged into anything, but when they encounter the sun, they illuminate. That's the light of Christ. And so he's saying to these Jews who are judging the Gentiles for not living the law of Moses, he's saying, you don't understand, the law is written in their hearts. In fact, I love, if you go in the notes, you can find a kind of a scripture chain about this, but this is written all over scripture where God says that he inscribed us with his law. We don't know it specifically. We might not know all the details of the law, but it will resonate with us. The reason I like that so much is sometimes we picture the that experience in the fall as this big division where God you know, pushed us back and divided us from him. And I think the very fact that he inscribed his message on our hearts and put the light of Christ in every single person shows us that he doesn't want division. He wants us to come home. It, it is written in their hearts. And so they choose good. They don't choose it exactly the way the Jews have chosen it because they have a more specific law, but they, they lean into their conscience and they trust in the light of Christ. And that's what makes them righteous to God because righteousness to God is based on the power and the understanding that you currently have. Are you faithful to the understanding you currently have? If you are, then you're proclaimed righteous or just by God and you're worthy of his gifts. And so that's what Paul will teach a little bit further in the verses. Like in 17, behold, thou art called a Jew and resteth in the law and maketh thy boast of God and knowest his will and approvest things. You, you have the law with you. You've always had the law with you, but these Gentiles who are coming into the fold also live according to the light and knowledge that they have within them. And so he talks about the bridge. He's like this understanding of Jesus Christ and his justification is the bridge that will connect all of you. So he teaches that a little in a little more detail, like in 25, for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. He's basically saying like all those rites and those 
steps of the laws of Moses were great if they are like a schoolmaster that leads you to Christ. If you aren't following, if you aren't abiding and doing the things that the law was designed to help you do, then you missed the whole point. So he's trying to teach them it's it's not the law that made you righteous. It's abiding by it. It's choosing to have faith in the process that he's offering. And so he clarifies in 29. But he is a Jew, which is one that is inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Conversion is deeper. And an understanding is deeper. It's supposed to be something that comes from within and then shines out. Not the other way around. Another evidence that Paul is a seer is that he can almost anticipate the questions that would inevitably come next. It's kind of like parenting in this way, where oftentimes I'll give my kids guidance on something and I know exactly what question they're going to ask me next. I can see the gears working in their head and I know their personality enough to be like, okay, I know what's coming. And that's, that's what happens with Paul. So he's just taught them all about that it really, you didn't need the law of Moses in order to have a good heart, in order to choose righteousness because it's inscribed on your hearts and there's this light of Christ that's given to every man. All of that is in existence. And so you, you shouldn't judge each other. And of course, the next question will be, then what's the point? If I didn't need the law of Moses, then why have I been counting my steps on the Sabbath? Why did I need to be circumcised at eight days old? Why did I need to do all of those things? And I think it's a really natural question. And I really like the way Paul answers it because basically what he says is, you don't appreciate what you have by choosing to live in this covenant during your lifetime. You have been shielded from so much sorrow. It's the same thing. I think if you ever had a conversation with your kids about baptism and they'll say things like, I kind of wish I could find the gospel at 85 or 95 so that I could for sure make it to the celestial kingdom. You know, this idea of like, oh, it'd be better if I didn't know the truth so that way I can get cleansed right at the end and then be on the road to righteousness. The problem with that is any convert you've ever talked to that has, you know, the fire of the gospel ignited in their hearts, they will always talk about how they wish they found the gospel sooner and how lucky you are to have been born in the covenant or have been a member of the church for a long time because you've been able to see the fruits, right? The fruits of the gospel are rich in this life, not just in the life to come, but your marriages are better. Your families are stronger. Your health is better. Like, there are so many blessings that come from living God's law throughout your lifetime that, of course, it's worth it. The big one that Paul points out in two is that they had the oracles of God. The Jewish members have grown up with scripture. They've grown up knowing that God is real and that he cares about the lives of his saints and that he'll part waves for them if necessary, that he will defeat their enemies. Like They have had scripture in their lives, and that means they've had a precedent for faith. They, they have a reason to have hope and to believe. And that is worth a monumental amount. So it's worth it that you lived all those laws of Moses so that you could know what these people are just starting to understand. And that's a, that's a gift. And we should be grateful for it. And then he talks about justification. Remember, Paul's goal is to bring these two groups together, the Gentiles and the Jews who are both on this covenant path, help them find common ground. And their common ground is understanding the natural man. This has been really interesting to me because over the 18 months that I've been teaching this little YSA class, we've taught the fall. I, I mean, I've taught four different classes, you know, different institute programs. 
with this same basic group of kids. And I've taught lessons on the fall, I don't know how many times, 10, 12 times maybe. And it's fascinating to me that there's so much emphasis on the fall. But the more I teach it, the more I realize that you really don't understand that you need a savior unless you understand the fall. Otherwise, it just sounds nice. It sounds comforting. Jesus sounds like a comforting friend. But what the fall teaches is that we absolutely have to have him, that no amount of faith or works in him can compensate for what happened in the fall. So just like we've talked about in the past, when I teach the fall, I like to teach it as this downward yet upward forward trajectory. So I always picture it like a big ski jump or the beginning of a roller coaster that the fall kind of created this downward trajectory that gives us the momentum we need to go further in God's gospel plan. And so when you realize that you've gone down that far, you understand why you need the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, because you simply can't get back. Our goal is not to get back to the Garden of Eden. It's to get back into God's presence and to be there and feel comfortable in God's presence. And that's what the gift of the atonement offers. His grace gives you the ability to overcome the fall, something that no amount of works or good deeds can accomplish, and also the grace to be comfortable when you get back to God's presence, to belong there, because your character is different and who you have become has changed. That's what Paul's going to teach about. I just can't go through each and every verse, but that's kind of the main message of it. He talks about the options. So he talks a little bit about the natural man. So if you look in 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This is not Paul. This isn't Paul teaching that all of us are awful. You know, the same way I don't think in the Book of Mormon, they're trying to teach that the natural man is an enemy to God, meaning we're all awful. It means this state of man in a natural fallen world isn't compatible with God. We can't be in the same space again. We need the Savior to overcome that gigantic gap. He's the only one that can accomplish it. So when you turn the page, that's what he's going to teach about. He gives a couple Old Testament scriptures to try and jog the memory about why they need, why they need this redemption. I really love what you see in 18. It says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This um, fear of God sounds intimidating, unless you've read the other scriptures, right? Like what we read in Psalms in the Old Testament, where he talks about fear of God as the beginning of wisdom. You get that in the Book of Mormon too, that where I think it's after King Benjamin's speech and the people fall down to the earth because they all of a sudden understand why they need a savior. It's not that they think they are awful or that they've been super sinful. I mean, these are King Benjamin's people. I imagine they lived pretty good lives, but they have a new appreciation for how far the fall separated them from their divine potential, how, how much they need a savior. It's the same thing you see with Alma the Younger. When he has his road to Damascus moment, he experiences what it feels like to be caught in that. You know, he talks about being harrowed up and being snatched from that eternal gulf of misery. You feel it with King Lamoni's wife as well. I don't know what she saw when she was out for her time, but as soon as she is brought back to consciousness, she talks about how grateful she is to be snatched out of that gulf of misery and endless woe. I just don't think we have a full appreciation. That's why I'm grateful for the scriptures, because we have these little witnesses of how big that gap is and how much we need the Savior. And when you appreciate how far a fallen man is from God, then you begin wisdom. That's where you step into discipleship and you say, okay, I see, I see, I understand the gap. I want to come close. And that promises that we will be reconciled. 
we can be brought back into his grace all through the gifts of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's teaching. So he says in 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And this is 22. And even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us, Jew, Gentile, no matter if you joined the church yesterday or were born into this gospel, all of us come short of the glory of God. And his work and his glory is to bring us back home. That's what he seeks for us. And that's why we all need a savior. It's this key element of common ground in Paul's time and also in our in ours. And so he talks about how that's what the law was for. It was to establish this promise of faith. And then he's going to take us deeper into that study of faith in chapter four. I really think Paul's kind of a master teacher at this point in his ministry. You know, he's been a missionary for decades. He, he knows what helps people understand the gospel message. And a big one for this particular group, where they're struggling to understand the divisions between Jew and Gentile and how they find peace, a big way to do that is by teaching them and reminding them about Abraham. Because just like the apostles today, when they come to conference to help give guidance about how to live God's law better or more closely— what they do is they set precedent, right? They use scriptures to show that their message is aligned with, with doctrine that's been in existence for a long, long time. And that's sort of what Paul does when he speaks about Abraham. Because Abraham is one that doesn't have the advantages that the Jews have. He's someone who wasn't circumcised at birth. He certainly didn't live the laws of Moses because he came hundreds of years before Moses was even born. Like he couldn't have abided by the law. So the law couldn't be what makes him righteous. He also is somebody that doesn't come from this, you know, amazing line of patriarchs. I mean, think about Abraham's experience, you guys. Remember when we studied this in the Old Testament, like his father put him on an altar. He worshiped idols. Abraham had to leave his father in order to fulfill the destiny that God had in mind for him. He is nothing like what the traditional Jewish member would respect. And yet all Jews in this group honor and respect Abraham. The beauty of this teaching choice is that the Gentiles do too, because Abraham is the father of both of these groups. He is their common ancestor. So if they both revere Abraham, then he becomes this bridge of like, let me show you how Jesus Christ can fulfill and justify all people. And Abraham's a beautiful example of that. So we know that Abraham's life was counted unto righteousness. A Jew or a Gentile would declare that very same thing, that he was a righteous man because he lived according to the light and knowledge that he had. And as his light and knowledge grew, he lived according to that light and knowledge. And then as that grew, he increased. That's kind of Paul's message here. So he talks about how Abraham did it and that he basically did it by walking in the steps of faith. You can see that in verse 12, that he is this great father of these nations because he chose to walk. I just, that part I think is powerful because Paul is teaching us that faith is something that is action. It is, I understand exactly what the Lord wants me to do, even though I can't see it perfectly. And I will act in obedience. And that's what Abraham's whole life is, you guys. He he chose to walk in obedience when he couldn't see the beginning from the end like the father could. And I think there's some, he has some beautiful fruits to feast on while he waits for other fruit to come. Like I love at the end of Alma 32, there's this, that very last verse talks about how you can feast on things while you wait for the fruit to come. I think that's what Abraham's life 
manifest. Because even though he, you know, he was over 100 or maybe right at 100 by the time Isaac finally came around, during all that time, those, you know, decades of time when he was following the Lord's guidance, there were fruits. He didn't, that branch that was, you're going to have a covenant son and he will be the father, you'll be a father of nations. That didn't have any fruit on it yet. But he trusted that the fruits in the rest of the tree were so abundant and so good that that promise would be fulfilled, that that branch would produce fruit. You know, if you've ever harvested or grown like a little fruit tree and seen like just a little bit of fruit at the beginning and you feast on that while you wait for the rest of the tree to fill out, that's what I think we're asked to do all the time. There are parts of the gospel that just don't quite click for me yet, or there are parts of promises in my patriarchal blessing or things I've heard in blessings from priesthood leaders that aren't fulfilled yet, but I trust that they will be because there's so much fruit in the rest of my tree of testimony, guys, that I'm like, I know it's going to come. And that's what Abraham demonstrated because for a century, he trusted that God would fulfill his promise. That's what Paul reminds them of. So he says in 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, but when he was about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't look at any physical evidence in front of him to determine how to act in relation to God's promises. He actually discounted all the physical things he could see and feel and touch, and instead trusted in what he could not see, could not feel, and could not touch. That is faith, to set aside all evidence that is in front of your mortal perspective and lean wholeheartedly on the sight that comes only spiritually. That's what he did. In fact, I love the way it's phrased in here. So in 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith giving glory to God. All that time where he was waiting for that one branch, that promise of a covenant son to be born, he and his wife trusted. They staggered not. I just think one of the ways we can choose to stagger not is to shut our mortal eyes. You know, like to to block out all the natural man tendencies in ourselves and focus in on what is lasting and what is real. That's how you don't stagger. You can stand solidly because you're not impacted by the craziness and dizziness of the world around you. They focused in and 21 and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to also perform. He was convinced that if God asked him to do something, he had the ability to do it. It's just like Nephi heading in to get the plates. He knows that God doesn't give commandments without giving you the tools to accomplish it or the brother Jared on the barges or any of those moments of epic faith where things are put to the test and you have to say, "I, I believe there's so much fruit in the rest of my tree that even though I can't see this promise, this branch is not producing, I know that it will because the seed that started this whole tree is evidently good. I can see the evidence of its goodness and I trust that the tree is going to produce. That's that's Abraham and that's what Paul wants them to lean in toward, into, that stance of solid understanding. And he says, it's not just for Abraham, it's for you too. So we go on 24. For, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. The way we can have this stance of faith is to believe in Jesus Christ. When I was talking to my YSAs this week, we talked about whether or not you can have unshakable faith. Because it almost seems like an oxymoron to me. Because faith means you can't see something and you're taking this leap of trust. So can it be unshakable. And what I've settled on after reading some words of Jacob is the way I can have unshakable faith is I have faith in someone who is unshakable. I know that Jesus Christ is 
unshakable. I know his doctrine is true. I know it is solid. And so even if my faith is imperfect, because my faith is in him, it's unshakable. That's what I think Abraham understood, certainly what Paul understood. And that's why he can stand boldly and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the way of salvation. He's going to echo that again in chapter 5. A friend of mine gave a talk about deep learning and that through deep learning and struggle, we like understanding gets planted in us and it lasts much, much longer. Not even just in the spiritual sense, but also in a secular sense. Like when we have to really fight for understanding and knowledge, it lasts a lot longer. I actually think that's what Paul is teaching here, but he adds an element for the spiritual learning process that's critical, and that is faith. So if you look in verse one, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's trying to say that like at this, you get to a settled place. That's where Abraham was. Even though that branch of the covenant son hadn't produced fruit yet, so much else in his life had fruit. To know that God loved him and that he saw him, that he was going to fulfill his promises, that he was settled. He had peace in God. And when you're at that place of peace, then you can approach tribulations differently. It's kind of like what we said with Joseph Smith just a couple weeks ago about where he said, like, deep waters are what I am want to swim in. Because he's learned that even though God doesn't give him all these tribulations, he doesn't create the mobs that put him in prisons, he doesn't cause these problems, he can take all those things and make them work together for his good. Because if we go through this deep learning process and we base it on a faith in this unshakable Jesus Christ, then we can have confidence that it'll all work out. And that's what Paul teaches. I actually love this cycle. It's between, like, two and five. He teaches this cycle of building trust and hope. The end result to me is that we have these deep anchors of hope. In these turbulent waters of this fallen world, we have confidence that we are solidly planted. There's a beautiful BYU devotional. I can't, Alan Harkin, I think it's in the notes. You can go find it. But he talked all about sea anchors and this cycle that's offered by Paul. That's where I learned this principle of faith and this idea of like, if you base it on faith in Jesus Christ and then go through this deep learning process, it becomes these steady anchors. Because that's what Paul teaches. Not only so, but we glory in tribulation in three, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because of the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. That's why Paul can stand boldly and not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he has absolute hope in the promises. He, he knows it for himself. He's seen the fruits and he's tasted the fruits and he's saying, it's worth it. And experiences why we were sent here, right? Because this whole point is that we can grow through this gritty process of mortality and become more like him. What I love is then he teaches about the atonement. He offers this guidance that the atonement is what gives you the ability to use these hard experiences as a tool to progress. I just, there's a twofold promise in the atonement that I think is laid out in this verse, especially if you look in 10. Well, let's do 9 and 10. It says, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then in 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The promise of the gift of grace is that all of us get to go back to the presence of God to be judged, right? That's why we aren't held accountable for Adam's transgression, because it wasn't our fault that Adam and Eve made that choice. And so it wouldn't be just for us to be held accountable for those mistakes. So we all get to go back to where we began. We get to be with God to be judged. 
how we feel when we get there and whether we want to stay there, whether we're comfortable there, is based on this second part of grace. What he says at the end, so much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The Savior's teachings about how to live, how to keep his commandments, how to honor God's laws, how to love God and our neighbors, all those things that the Savior taught us in the Gospels, those are our way to feel comfortable in the presence of God, feel at home in the celestial kingdom because it refines us. It's this process of both. We all have promised that we will be resurrected and we'll have a chance to be right back where we were in the presence of God, but we will not be the same person because of the gifts and grace of Jesus Christ. He makes us enough, both overcoming the fall and overcoming all of our natural man tendencies. I just think it's this beautiful, holistic promise, and it is free. And that's what Paul will emphasize multiple times in this chapter. It is a free gift given to Jew and to Gentile, given to anyone who, if you joined the church 10 years ago or joined it five years from now, like it's this free gift that's available to all who will grab it. And so he invites everyone to lay hold on it. I love the way it's phrased in 21. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. He's basically saying, like, Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. Grab onto this free gift. It is right here in front of you. It will make your life here in mortality better, and it will make your hope for the future much, much brighter. I think the next question Paul is anticipating is essentially them saying, like, well, then should I keep sinning? I mean, if it brings glory to God by using the gift of the atonement? Should I continue to, to sin? And he's, he says very boldly and clearly, no, that is, this life is a time prepared to meet God. What I love is because we've learned about both sides of the atonement, that it is this great gift that offers us an opportunity at resurrection for all people. And also that it offers us this strengthening power to become like Christ. What he's saying is, you're going to use the atonement every single day, all the time, but you're going to use it for this other thing. You're going to use it to increase and improve and become new creatures. The lovely thing is that they, by being baptized, by making covenants with God, they've already started this process of becoming a new creature in Christ. The way he describes it is different than it is in the Book of Mormon, but it's the same message. So if you're looking for it, it says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in a newness of life. His promise here is when you come out of the waters of baptism, you are not the same creature that you were before. You have repented, you've shown faith, you have made steps and made covenants with God, and he is promising to be there with you along the way. You are not the same anymore. You're not finished and full. The visual that always helps me is what we said in the Book of Mormon when Alma was teaching about being new creatures and we made those butterflies. Remember how there was a great talk from Sister Nelson where she talked about how in order to be a butterfly, you have to never be a caterpillar anymore. Like you have to set aside that phase of your life and become something new. They're kind of in that chrysalis stage because they're just learning, you know, what their potential is, but they are no longer who they used to be. And Paul's helping them understand that. So he's saying that that step of baptism, you buried that old caterpillar version of yourself and you are now something different. So of course you won't revert back to a life of sin because you are a new creature now. And these butterfly-like creatures, wouldn't it be a shame if they spent their whole life walking along the ground instead of opening up their wings and 
taking off. That's what Paul's trying to teach them. So he does it in a few different ways, but I love his approach. He talks about grace. So like in 14, it says, or this 12 first, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. It's the same thing that we read in the Book of Mormon, this guidance of like, set aside the natural man and come unto God, yield to those enticings of the Holy Spirit and let him work a mighty work in you so that you are unrecognizable compared to your earlier self. You are a bright new creature with infinite potential. That That's his promise. And that all of that comes through this gift of grace. I love the idea of momentum that comes in these verses. He's basically saying like, as you choose righteousness, now that you've made covenants with God and you took that step, you've increased your momentum and your ability to push further. The visual that always helps me is a mountain bike tire. So if you picture, my boys are both on mountain bike teams. And so they have these fancy bikes with a bajillion gears. I only had like a huffy bike that had no gears and a big sparkly banana seat, but they have these fancy bikes so that when they go on a hill, they can shift gears and adjust how their pedals rotate and how much they're how much pressure they need to put on in order to advance. I think that's what obedience gives us, you guys. I think when we choose to be obedient to the commandments of God, willingly, with our own hearts, like because it's written on our hearts and we want to show our love for God, it's essentially like clicking into a new gear. His gift to us is another gear to say, okay, I can help you make this uphill climb easier. I'm going to give you that tread that you got on your tires and I'm going to put it to a better use. I'm going to take your energy and use it more efficiently and more give you more momentum that's the promise and i think it's worth every sacrifice because every gear advance we get makes that uphill climb smoother and stronger and straighter and it's worth the effort right i just i think that's his promise so when you go to the end of Romans six he basically says that it's like if you are obeying from the heart which all of you have done so far especially the gentiles that didn't have didn't have the word of God before. Like they are obeying from the heart and he's saying, you've done a great job so far. Keep going, keep your momentum forward and bring And then an 18 being then made free from sin. You became the servants of righteousness. It's interesting to me in these last couple of verses, he basically says like, cast your mind back on who you used to be. You don't need to forget who you were as a caterpillar. You need to remember what that felt like and how limiting it was so that you can use that as momentum to keep going forward. Cast your mind back on where you were so that you can look forward with faith that if you got help then you'll get faith, you'll get help today. What I think is powerful is he ends his talk about fruit. He says, I want you to think back on the fruits that you had in that old life. What what did your family look like? What did your community feel like? What how did you feel when you thought about somebody like God? What were the fruits of that old life? And compare it to the fruits of this new one. Think about how good it tastes to know that you are loved by God, that you have a Savior who will redeem you, even when you don't live perfectly. How good it tastes to know that there are others in this work with you and that you're going to figure this out together. And for me, I think one of the most powerful things that Paul seems to emphasize is that you're not obedient out of fear. How good does it taste to be obedient because you have hope? You have hope that this promise is real, that these everything he's offered you and everything he has yet to give you will in fact come. Choose to be obedient because you have hope. It's kind of like what we read, is it 2 Timothy, where he says that 
God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of love and of a sound mind. It's the same idea, right? Paul is saying, I don't want you to choose this because you're afraid of the consequences of choosing poorly. I want you to choose it because you know exactly how good it tastes and you're willing to make the sacrifice. It's the same invitation President Nelson gives us today. So I think there's a lot of power in this week's verses. Welcome to the creative side, you guys. Uh, this is a week where we, you might need some creative because you guys, Romans is hard. It is a hard batch of scripture to study on your own. And it's a hard batch of scripture to teach because of the language, not because of the doctrine. The doctrines that are woven into Romans, especially these first six chapters, they're gorgeous, eternal principles. They're just packaged in a way that's really hard to understand. So I think it's one of the reasons we need creatives in our life because it, it just helps you navigate this. It helps pull out what's important and teach your kids in a way that they can remember and relate to. So that's what I'm trying to do here with the object lessons. This is not so much to entertain as to find a way to educate in a way that's palatable <laughs> to your kids. And hopefully this will help you. Okay. So what were your supplies list? For those of you who are watching on YouTube or listening on the free podcast, I'm just going to give you a quick preview of the three different object lessons and the supplies you might need. And then for those of you who are watching on the full course or listening on the private podcast, just keep watching or listening and you'll get the full story of how to pull these off and the printables and the notes and all the things you might need to try to teach these smoothly to your families or your classes. Okay. Let me walk you through the supplies first. The first one's really easy. You just need two pairs of sunglasses. We're going to actually talk about the guidance that Paul gives in Romans 1. This is when he's teaching about, he, he basically gives guidance to the saints saying, here's the way and here's all the other ways. And all these other ways lead to darkness. When you take the gifts God has given you, your natural inclinations, your talents, your abilities, and you distort them for your own purposes, or you change them in order to serve the natural man, things get dark pretty fast. And there's a really cool way to teach that with two pairs of sunglasses. So look for ones that are polarized. If you don't know for sure sunglasses are polarized or not, I'll show you a trick so that you can figure that out. But it's pretty easy. Almost all gas station $10 sunglasses are polarized. So there's find, find a couple pairs and you'll be good to go. It does seem to help if you have one pair that's a little bit larger than the other pair, just for the object lesson's sake. The other thing that's handy is if you find a pair that doesn't look like this, <laughs> So this is all I could find on hand. But if you find one that doesn't have a super shiny surface, they seem to work a little bit better in this object lesson. But as you can see, I ended up using it and it worked just fine. So see what you can find around your house or in your junk drawer and you'll be all set for the first object lesson. The second one, you really don't need any supplies other than what you would already use in your Come Follow Me. So you're going to either use something like your Come Follow Me manual or even printed scriptures or even scriptures on the app. Any of those will work. And we're going to talk about what it means to be justified. That's a big theme in this week's study. And I think you can teach it with typography. So I'm going to show you, since I'm a graphic designer, I'm going to teach you a cool, simple way to show your kids what it means to be justified and what the blessings are that he is offering. Third one, this is a little more interactive. So on this lesson, I'm trying to teach about that cycle of hope that Paul teaches us, that we glory in tribulations because they lead us to patience and patience leads us to experience and experience to hope. That cycle we'll go through over and over again in our life. 
what I like about what Paul's teaching is he's saying you don't need to avoid adversity. You don't have to seek it out for sure, but you don't need to avoid it because God can make all things work together for your good. So we're going to teach that by making tops. So just like you played with when you were a little kid, we're going to do a cardboard version of a top that your kids can spin. And there's a couple different sizes to work with. For this one, supplies wise, we're going to talk, you just need the printable and then you also need some cardboard. I did find that when I made this just paper, they weren't heavy enough because basically what you're teaching is that the weight that the top offers to this pencil gives it uh, gives it the ability to spin. So it helps to add a little bit of weight. For us, I used like an Amazon Prime package because we always have those available at our house. And I mounted the cardstock onto cardboard and that seemed to give me just the right amount of weight. I did give you some that are larger like this that have a stack of printables on them. And then there are some cute little tiny ones that you can use um, if you have a bunch to make in a class. The only other supply you need for this one is the centerpiece, which we just used broken pencils. <laughs> so this is the time of year since it's, you know, August, you're probably going through all your kids old backpack and old junk and finding all the broken old pencils. This is a really good use for them. Or if you don't have those on hand, it's school supply time, you guys. So go to the store, you can buy a pack of pencils for like $1.50 and have plenty to use. Ideally, you want some that are small. So for us, I actually took new pencils and cracked them into two pieces. And that made plenty of options for me to create tops with. So cardboard, broken pencils, and you'll be good to go. Before I even begin, I have to give full credit for this cool object lesson to Sam. Sam brought this up to my attention, I don't know, maybe two or three months ago, and we've been trying to find the right way to use it. And it wasn't until this week when I read Romans 1 that I was like, oh, this is the sunglasses week. Because <laughs> basically what happens is, this, the people in Rome take things that God designed to give them joy and happiness and goodness, and they are altering them. They are changing the, the ways of God to suit their own purposes. And in that alteration, they end up in darkness. And he talks about the slew of sins that follow when we're on that trajectory of darkness. And you can go in the notes and read this in more detail. But I just think there's a really strong warning about taking the gifts of God and using them in his way. There's actually a lot of precedent for this in scripture. This is in the notes as well, but I was starting to think about, like in the Book of Mormon, for example, Lehi and Nephi are promised that they're going to get to this promised land and that if they live in righteousness, it will flourish and they will have joy in their posterity and all will be well. If they don't, if their people turn against God, then all those promises are forfeited. It's not that God took those promises from them. It's that he can't give them to them. The blessings are withheld because they are not worthy to receive them. The same thing happens, like, for example, with the Liahona. It's this gift that's designed to make their lives better and easier and so they can navigate. But if they don't live righteously, it doesn't work. Um, it's dark. There is a darkness, not in the instrument itself, but in that it can't navigate. It's like having a sky that's completely clouded over. They can't navigate by it. You see the same thing in the Doctrine and Covenants um, when the saints are guided to they're, they're promised that they will be given an abundance of things, that the land will grow well, that they'll have profits, but that they have to promise that they will consecrate those things, that they'll take care of the poor and look after the widows. And if they stop being charitable, those blessings can't be theirs. That's, well, that's what the, the Paul's trying to teach these saints. And the one way I found to teach this, thanks to Sam, is to talk about sunglasses. So I don't know if you know this about polarized sunglasses, but when you hold up a pair of polarized sunglasses like this, you can actually see through it just fine, right? These glasses are actually designed to be a help. 
They're kind of like the liahona in that they're given to us to protect us and give us clear sight on bright, shiny days so that we can see farther and have our eyes be protected. What's interesting is if you hold them in the wrong way, they do exactly the opposite. So it's hard for me to demonstrate here, but I'll show you on the video that basically what you want to do is either wear the pair of sunglasses and hold the other pair of glasses uh, vertical and horizontal and see the shift. Or if you're trying to show a whole class at once, you can hold your sunglasses up in front of a window so that everybody can see it at the same time. But I actually thought it was cooler when we actually wore the sunglasses. So basically have your kids put on a pair of polarized sunglasses and then hold up a second pair against a light source of some kind. They'll be able to see through that second pair just fine. So for us, you can see the mountains, you can see the clouds behind it, even with two sets of sunglasses at play. What, what changes the vision and makes it immediately dark is when you distort it. So when I take this good gift that I've been given that's designed to protect me, and I try to use it in my way, in a way that's contrary to what God's laws are, I get darkness. You can flip it back and forth and see this very stark, very clear difference. In God's way, I have sight and I can be protected. In my way, I have darkness. There is no fruit. In fact, President Nelson calls it bitter fruit. There is no fruit on that tree. And I think it's powerful to use this as a tool to teach a lot of different things. Anything we do that takes the gifts of God or the natural inclinations of our bodies and we use it in a way that is counter to God's plan results in darkness. You can see Paul lay out some of those. I put some in the notes for you. My hope is here that you can pray about this and think about what your kids need. You know, if their struggles are with pornography or if you're worried about other issues that you can kind of like dive into this object lesson and teach what those inclinations are, that they're not evil inclinations. It's that we're using those inclinations in our way instead of in God's way. And when we do that, it always yields darkness. So hopefully this sunglass, sunglasses lesson will give you a lot of different ways to teach. Well, one way to teach a lot of different issues that your kids might be wrestling with or that you think they might in the future wrestle with. So hopefully this gives you tools to use in a lot of different ways. A lot of Paul's teaching this week focuses on justification, this ability to be pardoned from our mistakes in this fallen world through the grace of Jesus Christ, that we all come short of his glory, that none of us can be perfect in this life, and that even if we were perfectly righteous, we would come short of the glory of God. And so he says, relax and be at peace. I actually think one of the things I'm hoping with this object lesson is that you can touch on perfectionism, because I think it's something that a lot of our kids struggle with, and all of us sometimes struggle with. We get anxiety about trying to be as perfect as we possibly can, and we worry that we are unlovable to God because we haven't been perfect. What I love about the doctrine of Paul this week is he teaches that you are loved by God no matter what. In fact, I think it's Elder Rasband who said, like, God loves you and has always loved you, and nothing you do or do not do can change that. What he wants to do is love and bless you. And in order to bless you, you need to be obedient. That's what I think the basis of this is. And then you want to talk about how justification bridges that gap. Justification is one of those words that sounds complicated, but your kids actually probably instinctively recognize it. They just don't know it. So that's where the object lesson comes into play. So if I were you, when you were starting, this is how I did it with him last night. I basically called him into my office and I said, okay, Sam, I want you to look at this text. So I held up the Come Follow Me manual, but your scriptures are aligned this same way. Almost anything the church produces has this sort of alignment. And I said, Sam, I want you to look at this. Have you noticed that like all these lines have different numbers of characters? In fact, for one of the pages, I actually went and counted all the characters, like all the letters and all the spaces. And I wrote the 
some at the end, like how many there are. And what's interesting is even though this line might have 86 characters and this one might have 78 and this one might have 93, they all begin and end in exactly the same place. And so I said to Sam, like, how does that work, Sam? How is it that each of these lines have different numbers of characters and spaces and yet end in this perfect line down the page? And what I would do if you were had a little time is I would challenge your kids to actually try to accomplish that in a word processor of some kind. Like go open up a Google Doc on their Chromebooks or in their phone or wherever and say, okay, I want you to type out this paragraph from the Come Follow Me manual and try to get your edges to line up perfectly. If they don't know anything about alignment, then they'll try and they'll fail, right? It'll look like the notes that are on my, on my Google Doc. They all end at a different place that they don't line up neatly on the end. And then you want to teach them about an alignment tool called justification. So if you go up in the tools section of your Google Doc, there's one that's like center align, left align, right align, and then there's one called justify. And justify means no matter how many characters, no matter how many spaces there are, we can get, the computer will spread that out perfectly so that you have these lovely even lines of text. That's what the gift of grace is for us. He's saying it doesn't matter how many letters you come to me with. It doesn't matter how many spaces you have or how long of your, how much of your life was spent in darkness. It doesn't matter. Come to me with what you can and I will justify you. There, there are blessings to obedience. I'm not trying to imply that we don't need to choose obedience because he wants to love and bless us, right? But what he promises through justification is that every one of us can be made whole. We can be made full. And we don't need to stress about how many letters we were able to accomplish. We don't need to stress about how many spaces there are in our line because with his justification, we are made full. And what I love about what you see in the manual is it doesn't look wonky, right? Like I, when I read this, I actually can't see a big gap between two words. I can't see big spaces or holes. What I see is just this smooth line of text because the computer is so good that it won't just create spaces between the words. It'll sometimes even space out letters in, you know, tiny increments so that it over the, when your eye glances across it, it looks evenly spaced and it looks whole because that's what he promises. He promises that no matter what you looked like before, when you come to him in humility and you make covenants with him, and then you work in your life to try and keep him, especially through the repentance process, that his justification will be available to you. And there will be a point when you can highlight your life and hit justify, and he will say, full, you are made whole and full. And I just think that's an incredible promise I want all my kids to understand. And my hope is that by doing it in a word processor thing, that the next time they have to go and select center text, write a line text, and they see that little justify every time they're in a you know word doc in high school or middle school, they'll remember that promise and it'll hopefully keep them steady just one day more. I'm sure you guys probably remember that talk from Elder Bednar about bearing our burdens with ease and the logs. Remember when he's like, there's a telling a story about his friend and he's stuck in the snow and it's not till he puts the logs in the truck that he gets the traction he needs to move forward, that the load was a blessing. That's kind of what Paul's trying to teach us in his words as well. Because he basically says, things aren't going to go great. You're going to have tribulations. Some because God wants you to learn and some because just this world is hard. And so what God promises is that in those tribulations, if you turn to him, if you have a faith in God at the beginning, then he can take those tribulations and help them work together for your good. You can establish things like experience and patience and hope when you turn to him for help and purpose for your adversities. A really simple way to teach that is by creating a top. 
So essentially you're going to start with a little pencil like this. It can be a broken pencil. It does help to have a really a, a clear point on it. So you don't want to sharpen all your pencils. Um, get a good point on it and then invite your kids to spin it. Like just try to spin it. Maybe they'll hold it between two hands and try and flick it. See how long they can get that pencil to stand. <laughs> Chances are it'll stand for about like a half a second. You know, like it, no matter how fast you spin it, this pencil is too top heavy and it will fall over. Then you want to show the difference between that experience and what happens when you add a lot of weight. That's basically what a top is. So this week we are making a top. It's a pencil that you hope to be able to spin. And the way to make it spin is by giving it a whole bunch of weight at the bottom. This I think happens to us spiritually. Sometimes we see our adversities and we think, why are you putting that weight on my shoulders? I've felt that many times where I'm like, why? Especially this time where I'm already struggling. Why are you adding this calling onto me? Why are you giving me this adversity on top of everything else I'm dealing with? And that's what I'm hoping to illustrate with the top, especially this bigger one. I give you two different sizes in the printable. There's a small one that you can make a bunch of or a bigger one that has added weight. Because what I like about this larger one is because it has three circles stacked on top of each other, actually the more weight I add on this, the longer it can spin. This, even though this big top and this small one have the exact same pencil size, they actually spin much longer in the big version because I've got more weight, more load, and it distributes my that that force better. So then I can get my top to spin much, much longer. So the idea here is that you can talk through your kids struggles. They, I'm sure, can list them for you. Maybe you can testify about some of your own where you found ways that God has given you a way through your adversity, where your disappointments, your doubts, your discouragements have turned into wells of hope through this cycle that Paul describes. When you turn those adversities over to God and allow him to give you experience and patience and hope, it will abound in you. And hopefully the tops will help you pull that off. Violet did come up with a game that she recommended you play. If you wanted to take this to the next level, you could get a top in each of your kids' hands and have a race, maybe on the countertop or on a giant cookie sheet, and see whose top can spin the longest, almost like bumper cars or Beyblade style. And the other thing I would tell you is it's kind of cool to see what your tops draw. So it helps if you have a darker pencil or if you use a ballpoint pen, sometimes that's got like a gel tip, they work pretty well. But what you'll find is when you spin this top, it actually draws a pattern. It's really faint and small. You have to kind of look in close, but it draws these super fine, very perfectly spaced circles as it spins. What I like about that is I think that's the other thing he promises us through adversity, that as we lean in and own this adversity that's coming our way, we'll actually be able to accomplish things we never could have accomplished on our own. I could never draw that tiny little spirally circle design on my own and have it be so perfectly spaced and even. But almost like a spirograph, when you do it with the top, it it creates something you can't do otherwise. And I think that's a powerful second benefit of this object lesson, in addition to just the fun of creating a top and learning about the value of the load. So in the notes, you can find links to the Elder Bednar's short little video clip and also some scriptures to help guide your path. But hopefully these simple little tops will help you pull that off. Thanks for joining me, guys. That's it for week 32. Okay, I hope you enjoy this week. I know. I know it's hard. I know because I, the first day I started studying Romans, like a week and a half ago, I was like, what are we doing? Like, it is a, it's a shift from what we've been used to. But I did find that the more time I could give it, the more things kind of rose to the surface, especially as I went about my life and kind of kept doing my normal day-to-day -day routines, understandings would come. There's lots of great commentary out there. There's other Bible translations you can find in the notes. There's 
lots of good tools, but I really think the most helpful tool was to give it time and to give a chance for the spirit to teach me. Because the more chances I gave it where I came back to my scriptures and tried again, came back and tried again, prayed for help and tried again, that's where I've really found the most benefit. There were things specific to the doctrine that we're learning in these chapters that helped my life this week. I made better choices this week than I made in the past because of what I read from Paul this week. I promise it can help you even though it's hard. So give it the time you can. If you need extra help, you can always join me on Instagram. Monday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, I'll pop on for a live. You can join me there or watch it anytime in my feed for about a week. And I'll talk you through the insights and through the object lessons in a little more detail. If you have further questions and I don't answer them in the live or you don't get a chance to pop on the live, feel free to leave me a question on YouTube or better yet in the course. So on the discussion boards, you can leave me a question. That way you would get an answer from me or from anybody else who's watching who might know what they're talking about. (laughs) Hopefully between all of us, you guys, we can figure this out because we're going to be in Romans for a little while. So get comfortable. I know this language is a little trickier, but it can be understood, especially with the help of the Spirit. It can be understood and it can make a lasting impact. So promise it's worth it. All right, you rest you guys, and then I will see you in week 33. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.